right, we're in the book of Philippians again. So if you turn with me to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, we're going to read together and we'll look at about four verses this morning in depth and we'll be done. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. Paul the Apostle writing and he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents." This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. We're going to get to that difficult verse just now. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So let's remind ourselves for a moment, those of you joining us, we're on sort of part five or six already of of a session, of a series in Philippians, but let's remind ourselves briefly what's going on. We remember that Paul has been put in prison, and in prison, he's saying to them, this is a good thing. What was meant for harm has actually turned out for good. More people are emboldened, more people are spreading the word of God. And then we see just before this text, Paul has that famous in 121 where Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And two weeks ago, we looked at these two scenarios that were facing Paul. And he's, he's literally through the text in, in chapter one, in that section that we read, he's going through there and saying, this might happen to me or this might happen and this might happen. And there's these two scenarios and he's putting these things on, on different sides. And what happens is that in this text, it's kind of a break from that moment where he's been looking at, will I live or will I die? And as he contemplates living or dying, this beautiful, um, this beautiful passage begins to bubble up out of him. And he, and he begins to say this, only, in other words, whatever happens is the way the NRV translates it. The Greek, the Greek word there is this, is this word monon. And it has these two ideas to it. The one idea is whatever happens to me. And the other idea is this is of most importance or of of at all costs, at all costs, keep to what I'm about to say. So that little word only that's translated in the Greek there is saying those two things. So Paul's saying, I might die. He's saying, I might live. But he's saying, whichever one happens, this is another way of interpreting it, whatever I happens, whether, whatever happens, whether I live or die, of most importance, the thing I want you to cling to, Philippians, the thing I want you to hold fast to, Have you got the urgency of what he's saying? Is this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so my my preach this morning is entitled, Living a Life Worthy of the Gospel. Living a Life Worthy of the Gospel. And Paul's saying, whatever happens, this is the thing that's important. And so then we must ask the question, if this is so important to Paul, That if whatever happens to him, he wants them to cling to this thing, then we must ask, well, what kind of life is worthy of the gospel of Christ? 
What kind of life is worthy? And there's two ways you can, you can look at that question depending on which side of the line of faith you're standing on. If you don't yet believe that Jesus is who he says he is, if you don't believe that he is the king that he claims to be, the Messiah that he claims to be, then you won't be asking the question in the same way, but you'll be wondering what kind of life is worthy to get me eternal life or whatever it is that you envision being there after you die. What kind of life is, is worthy for the reincarnation you envision or the, the kind of heaven that you envision? Isn't this the great question? Isn't this the great question that our culture asks? How do, how do I do enough? How do I serve this higher being well enough? How do I get to heaven? How do I, how do I climb the ladder? What good thing do I need to do to, to achieve my eternal aspirations? If you've been around for any length of time here in New Gen, or if you're starting today, if it's your first time, hang around for a few weeks and you'll hear us very clearly and often explaining and contending for the fact that we believe that Jesus is the only way to God. And the reason, that, and, it's, and it's the distinguishing factor between Christianity and every other religion in the world. What's the distinguishing factor? In Christianity, Christ has done is the word that's spoken over us. It's done. In every other religion, you must do. You must do. And so if you're on that side of the fence this morning, that's how you might read Paul's question of what is a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's not just those who are not believers in Jesus who would see it like that. I, I think there's many of us who come to know Christ. We're justified. We believe in Jesus. But then we begin to live as if we don't. So we have faith for the salvation moment. But we don't have faith for the journey of sanctification that comes after that moment. I read a story this week. It was quite traumatic but also quite interesting for me about a man in the states who chopped off this huge rattlesnake's head he found it in his garden and he chopped off the head anyone else read this news story and I think it was a couple of hours or something later he tried to pick this head up and this thing bit him and he had to have I think it was 17 anti-venoms to to survive and he made it which is the happy part of the story right but apparently the snake can bite you for hours after you've severed its head from its body it has this bite instinct, this reflex. And for me, this is like this, this, is like this law-based thing with Christians. We come to Christ, we sever the head of the devil, but then like hours later, it feels like in our Christian lives, as we go on and we go on, the snake somehow bites us and we begin to think somehow that we've got to earn our salvation all over again. And the rattlesnake got us. This morning, I want to remind us. I want to bring us back again. There are works for us to do. We have this so beautifully, Nath. You brought this out so beautifully in our prayer meeting this morning. We were praying around this, this justification. But then a Christian person, person who believes in Jesus, what does a life worthy of the gospel look like? Well, Paul in this text in Philippians goes on immediately to begin explaining to us what it is. And we're going to look at it over the next few weeks. But the first thing that he says is he says, in order to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, live unified. Live a life 
of unity. This is what he says. This is what I want to hear of you. Whether I come to you or not, I want to hear, I want to get news that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. Listen to the words. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. If you've been here through this series, throw your minds back a few weeks ago. I think it was three weeks ago. We spoke around unity. And I got a little bit uppity around our way of dealing with other churches in our town. And that Christians are, are the people who kind of shoot holes in the boat that they're standing in. And then and Rod came to me, the American East Mountain Rod came to me after the meeting and reminded me of a, of a, a quote or a phrase which is so helpful. And he said, the, the Christian army is the only army in the world which shoots its own wounded. I thought that was, that's powerful. I should have had that there. So I got it in today, you see. But that week, three weeks ago, I read this text out of Ephesians, making this point around unity, around theological unity, and recounted how many times it says the word one in Ephesians 4, verse 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. In other words, theologically, we are unified. Shofar, Christchurch, Presby's, Gemeente, Engeer, whoever we are, we are one body. There isn't an Afrikaans body and an English body and a Zulu body. It's one body. But here, in Philippians, Paul is appealing to something different. He's not appealing to the theological unity of all being part of one body. He's actually speaking about the experiential unity. Because we can be in one body, but we can act like we're not. We can act like we aren't. And so we experience, and in a metaphor, my surname is Hotson, right? That's my born name. That's the family I was born into. And the, the metaphor for me is that he's not just talking about me being born a Hotson. Put your surname in there. But he's talking about me participating as a Hotson. Acting in a way that people say, oh, I know that you, you speak like your dad. You look like a Hotson. You behave like a Hotson. You contribute like a Hotson. You choose to act like a Hotson. Whether I do those things or not, I'm a Hotson. You're a believer. But you can choose to live in experiential unity with each other, or you can choose to create disunity. We've all seen that, right? So it's not just something that happens to you at salvation, but something that you are actively choosing to embrace and to live in. And in these verses, Paul is interested in encouraging the believers to act in unity toward one another. It's like there's a whole lot of people, there's 200 people, but he's saying act as one. Move like a Roman army. Move as one person. If you look from far away, it just looks like one being moving across the landscape. Let's quickly dig down into each of those little phrases very briefly that he looks at. He says, standing firm in one spirit. Remember who this unity, next week we're going to look at a different kind of unity. This unity is against who? Read the text. Who they unified against, or who they standing firm against. There's opponents from outside, there's attack from outside and he's saying I want to hear that you're standing firm against these opponents from outside 
What does one spirit speaks about, speak about? Well, one spirit speaks about being unified in spirit, being separate from the world, but still being together. So you're separate from the world, but you're not separate from each other. Does that make sense? He's saying you have the one Holy Spirit, and he's encouraging them, one another, pray for one another, have a common purpose, a determination to live for Jesus in this world together. How do you feel, New Gen? How do you feel we're doing on this one? How are you doing on this one? Do you feel like you're running side by side, standing firm in one spirit? And then he uses this little phrase, in one mind. This idea of one mind is all over Paul's writings. You go and read the epistles. It's, it's everywhere. That Paul is, is, is contending again and again. Agree with each other. Agree on the main things. Stop arguing and having silly, foolish controversies about little things that only you and your parents care about. Get over these little things. They're dis disruptive to the body of Christ. They don't promote unity. Man, how, how some of us need to hear that today. Some of us running after each and every controversy that we can find. We read the Bible, especially looking for controversial things. We, we approach our conversations and our life group meetings or whatever it is. We, we're so interested in arguing about the gospel that we completely forget to obey the gospel. Stop arguing about the gospel. It breaks down unity. Find things you can agree on and say, let's, how do we obey this? How do we do this? How do we live this out? This is an incredibly practical piece of Philippians. Living in unity with one another. Then he says, with one mind... Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Notice that little word striving. And what we've been talking about for five or six weeks. One of the main themes that comes out is that you're going to face suffering. You're going to face trial. But God will sustain you. And this word striving again reminds us striving together the NIV says. That the Christian life is a struggle. If someone sold you down the river and told you it wasn't, I'm sorry. It is. It's going to get worse just now, don't worry. We're getting there. <laughs> but he's saying there's hardship to endure. There's opposition to face. There's enemies without opposing you. And just now in chapter 2 or next week, we're going to look at the enemies within. There's a real devil and a very, very real flesh. Amen to that. And Paul is saying, endure, strive, fight. And we do that standing side by side with brothers and sisters. It's practical. It's, it's experiential unity. This is why I think when guys take themselves out of community, why I think they're crazy. Not because we're trying to grow some big church. If you've got that message, you ain't been listening in this church. That's not what we're about. But God made us for community. Community is not just for the lonely. It's not just for the person who needs to find some friends. Although it is that too, but it's way more than that. Community is for the charismatic. It's for, it's for the person who doesn't need to come here to find friends because we need it. God made us to live unified. The second thing that we see in this text in Philippians is that Paul 
contends for living a life of faith. For living a life of faith. You're going to have to stick with me on this one. Verse 27 again. I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. What is this little phrase, faith of the gospel? Think, think about it for a moment. Faith is the most important aspect of the Christian life, right? Faith is the most important aspect of the Christian life. Without faith, it is, finish the verse, impossible to please God. Michael Eaton, a theologian who died sadly last year, describes faith as this, trusting God through Christ in every situation. I like Michael Eaton because he speaks my simple language. Faith is trusting God through Christ in every situation. So when we trust God through Christ in every situation, no matter what you're facing today, we please God with that faith. When we trust God through Christ in every situation, we begin to look at our lives and we see that we are bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Our lives begin to change. And so I love this little phrase that Paul uses here, that the, the faith of the gospel, because we're so familiar with the faith in the gospel. Let's have an altar call moment. Who puts their hand up? Who believes in Jesus? Great. Now we're going to leave you like a little baby out on the plane that's just come to know Christ. Good luck. We've got to go find some more people who are going to believe in Jesus. And Paul is contending for a faith which continues, a faith of the gospel. The faith is being produced by the gospel. It's growing in the gospel. It's the faith of the gospel, not just in the gospel, which, as you know, is incredibly, incredibly important. But it's the starting point, not the finish line. See, the faith that the gospel message demands and proclaims begins in Jesus Christ. But then the gospel asks for more faith. Any of you experience this in your Christian maturing, in your, in your life that you live? It asks for more faith. Then it demands persistent faith. You've got to learn how to persevere. Then it starts, this is trials and there's tribulations. And the Bible says, God brings some of those into your life for our good. And we've got to say the faith of the gospel. The faith of the gospel. Last year around this time, a little bit later, I went to my grand's 85th up in the, in the Drakensberg. You often hear me speak about my grand because I lived there for so long and she was so formative in my life. And after that, we, I'd, I'd done a wedding and the guys had a, a holiday home up in Belito, so they offered it to us for a week or so. And it was beautiful, right on the beach, picturesque, wake up with the sunrise and it was just magnificent. But one of the nights we were there, I had a really disturbing dream and I couldn't wake up. And it was, this, it was this loop of my life. And it was, I was going back into my childhood. And it was like, it sounds all very psychological. It wasn't. But I woke up really perturbed from this dream. And it was this, this loop of all the things, or possibly it wasn't all the things, but a whole lot of things that I hadn't finished. Things that I had started, which I already knew was a problem. I already know I'm a great starter and I struggle to 
to keep that energy going over the finish line. But it was like it was an awful dream of just this on repeat, these things that I hadn't completed. And I was wrestling with this dream and I woke up and I was journaling and I was praying. I was saying, God, are you trying to say something? Because I don't normally remember much about dreams. So when I do, I pay a bit of attention. And then that night we had Wally and Shirley for dinner because they live in, in Flunger Rocks. You guys know them. They came and did the evangelism time with us in February for a month. And I was sharing with Wally and I was saying, hey man, I'm struggling with this and this is going on. This is the dream I had. And you know what, Wally, he's got his Jesus alphabet Bible, right? So he like pulls out the Jesus alphabet Bible and he's like, Paul, this is easy. You're struggling with P, with perseverance. This is the attribute of Jesus that you're missing. You haven't seen that Jesus endured to the cross. And it gave me such courage and this is this is some of what I think Paul is speaking about here when he speaks about we're striving and we're contending we're standing together we're standing side by side we're unified but we're unified in the faith of the gospel we need each other to keep growing in faith some of you this morning feel like you stalled feel like you've plateaued in your faith when you open your mouth you talk about yesteryear you talk about the faith you used to have, what you used to do, the missions you used to go on, the stuff you used to do. God's challenging you afresh this morning, saying the gospel of faith is, is demanding that we keep this faith going. That we keep, not we keep it, it's not some striving or some effort, but part of that is coming into community, living unified. Stop finding all the problems with everything. We can all see them. We all see them. There's very few people that come and say, this is a problem I see with Nugent. I go, is that all? We see them. But let's strive together for the gospel. Let's keep the mission the mission. Are you with me so far? The last one, I'm actually going to be quite quick today. I'm quite chuffed with that. <laughs> the last point I want to make out of this short text in Philippians is you are the signboard. You are the signboard. And we surrender to being the signboard. We say, yes, God, you can use my life. You can use my stuff, my life, to show yourself to the world. See, what happens when we stand in unity and we face opposition with faith? Let's read from verse 28. When we face opposition, standing unified and standing in this growing faith, this is what happens. This is a clear sign to them, the opponents, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, says Paul, and now here that I still have. We hold up a signboard. In fact, we are the signboards. I really struggled when I, when I read this, when I began planning and putting the series together and I reached verse 129. I really struggled with this verse because it's been granted to you. Other translations say it's been graciously gifted to you. Another translation says he has blessed you with. Another one says, for you have been given the privilege that for the sake of Jesus Christ, you should not only believe in him, that part we find, 
oh yes, the privilege of believing in Jesus. Thank you, I'm saved, I'm okay. That's a gracious gift. We're all okay with that, right? When was the last time you stood in worship and said, thank you, Father, for my suffering? Oh, that's not quite the fill in the blank I was expecting, Paul. That's not where I thought you were going with this. That you've graciously gifted me suffering for his sake. That he's blessed me with suffering for his sake. Put that in your prosperity gospel pipe and smoke it. <laughs> blessed me. Bless me indeed. You know that song, Overwhelm My Horizons with Suffering. You ever heard it go there? No, 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 no. For you have been given the privilege. I mean, this is, this is mind-blowing. And then last week, if you were with us, if you weren't, you can catch it up online. We did a detour, and it, it, it was just, it was a Saturday afternoon that I felt God changing what I was going to do for the Sunday, and it was so unusual, and I went into Ezekiel 36 and 37, and then this week when I was back in this text, I suddenly began to see this incredible link into Philippians. I saw it when I preached last week in brief, but this, I'll give you a quick quick update if, you, if you've just come in and you haven't got the rest of it. Remember, we're talking about we are the signboard. And Ezekiel's salvation theology in chapter 36 and 37 is effectively this. God will defend his name. God will defend his name or vindicate his name. And then it says he's going to do it so that all the nations of the world will fall down and say, He is the Lord. He is the Lord. Israel are profaning his name among the nations. He says, I'm going to vindicate my name so that all the nations will see that I am the Lord. And then remember where we went with this. He says, I'm going, to, I'm going to vindicate my name. I'm going to make a signboard to my name that all the nations can see by your suffering and your resurrection and restoration. And suddenly this became so clear to me when I read Philippians again, that we that we've, have a clear sign of their destruction, we show the nations that they are wrong and we suffer for his sake as well as believe for his sake because in it we're God's signboard. We are the signboards. And here's the crazy thing that Paul's saying. Both are gifts given to us. Gifts. I mean, so, so think about this. How does this work? Let's actually put it practically. Think about how can God's people suffering display God's greatness to the world? Well, I've got a few examples. A few thoughts. You can add many more to this. But the one we've already seen in, in earlier in the series when we looked at Paul in Philippians 1. And we saw how he was thrown into prison and then he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of what has happened to me, but this has served to advance the gospel. He says, people have been emboldened. If you go and read any Christian history, you don't have to read long before you find that we're not exactly the most popular group that's ever walked the face of the earth. And people like to put us to death, historically. It's called martyrdom. And you go and read about martyrdom, and you see this all over the place, that they, they, they kill one person, and then 10 more believe because of the way that this guy died or this woman died. They die singing hymns to God. You go and read about the old saints and the, 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 the secular accounts even of their death. 
And these people marvel. What kind of God can give people this grace, this peace, this joy as they face the stake? And that's not the fat butcher. That's like the thing they tie you to, stake. My sense of humor, excuse me. <laughs> Friends, we, we see this. How does God work through people's suffering and use it to display God's greatness to the world? We see it in you. I want to commend this morning those of you who've gone through deep, deep waters. Through death. Through facing personal Deep personal trial through facing diagnoses of cancer and other things that we've seen and we've witnessed as a community over the last few years. You are a signboard to us of the greatness of God as you face that with joy and with hope and with an eternal perspective. I mean, how can I not mention PHB who comes through occasionally? And I remember someone, some, one, of our, one of our ladies here was saved by the fact that his daughter, Sarah, was the way she went through it, went through the trial. Said, if you've, I don't understand how you can do this while your dad's had that happening to him and your mom's now being diagnosed with cancer. How do you still have joy? A signboard to the world. A signboard to the world. Because of a living faith, we were able to face tragedy and circumstance with joy, surrender, with confidence. Well, think about how does, how does God restoring his people display his greatness to the world? Well, this one's easy. Again, you can just look around the room. Some of you should never be here. We should never be here. We're absolute trophies of grace. Undeserved. Living a life which would have ended in absolute brokenness and God came and said you trophies of God's grace I think of the text Nathan read from verse 10 but last week we, we looked at Isaiah 61 from verse 1 to 7 and just how how God uses the poor the brokenhearted those who are mourning and, and he says oaks of righteousness over these people's lives these broken the poor And in so doing, God uses them to showcase himself to the world. Using the weaknesses of men and women. See, the God who allows circumstance and trial and tribulations is the same God that gives us faith to endure. I think of James. That passage that you don't want anyone to quote to you when, you, when you're facing trial, but we should. We should be quoting it to one another. Consider it pure joy. Think about that phrase there. Navi, it says it like this. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Not just the one. Many kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance, I think it carries on when it's completed its work in you. The idea is that it will bring forth maturity. Friends, do you want to be mature believers? Do we want to be people who say, Father, we have loved you our lives and we see the fruit, we see maturity in our lives. Then settle the fact that you are going to face trial and you're going to keep facing it until you can do it with joy. Don't waste your trials. When I'm going through a tough season, one of my constant prayers is, Father, let me use this, let me milk this for everything it's worth so that I don't have to come back around this mountain again. Some of you feel like you've been 
like, you know, you know that feeling when you're going through a trial and you're like, oh, I know that rock. It's like you're going around a mountain. Oh, I know that rock. That, that's a familiar tree. Oh, crumbs, I know where this is going. I know this mountain. I know this mountain. And sometimes it's our own sin that causes that. And that's so familiar for us, isn't it? Where we, we, we fall into a pattern of despair or a pattern of sinfulness or anger or whatever it may be. And we like, we see the signs all around the mountain. And it used to get me really down. And about six or seven years ago, I was chatting to a friend of mine who's from Australia. He's a pastor there. And he said to me, we're talking and I was sharing this angst and this like, I want to grow, but it feels like I'm just going around the same mountain again and again and again. And he said, Paul, you're looking at it from the wrong perspective. He said, you're looking at it from the top and from the top, it just looks like you're going around the mountain again and again. He said, I think God wants to take your, your angle and bring it to the side. And actually it's like an eagle. And each time it goes around, it's going one step higher and one step higher and one step higher. And it's an eagle on a thermal. And so each time God's taking me through this trial, it's like I'm learning something else. I'm, and it gave me such hope. Filled me with this, with this deep joy, like, God, take me on your thermals. I want to go up. I don't want to waste my trials. Let's read the complete text together again, and then we'll be finished in about two minutes. Only let your manner of life I want to stop there for a moment and take it away from just the Philippians that we've been speaking about. I want to ask you this morning, does your manner of life reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ? Would you say, my life is showing something of the manner of life which is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? So that whether I come and see you, says Paul, or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. But it's also, I didn't get to this, but look at this. This is a clear sign to them, take out of their destruction. This is a clear sign, but of your salvation. It's also a sign, it's a, it's a mark of the Father saying, you're assured, you're going through my trials, I'm giving you faith. This is good stuff. This is, this is God saying, you're assured of your salvation. A sign to you. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm still going through it. When I was with you 10 years ago, you saw it. Now, 10 years later, you hear that I'm still going through it. Prepare for the long road. So here's a summary of that whole text. It should come up in little boxes with arrows, just for those of you who process this way. Live a life worthy of the gospel, says Paul. And this life looks like unity, and it looks like striving together, side by side. This life looks like growing in faith together. This life includes suffering and God restoring. And all these things raise up a signboard to our opponents, to the world, to those who are far from Christ. In other words, your suffering can be your best evangelism. 
Let's think about this for a moment practically. Friends, some of us, some of us in the room, myself included, I'm asking when I finished this preach, I, was, I wrote here, Lord, is my manner of life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's the question we need to ask. And this is not a law thing. That's why I started with justification. It's all done. But there are good works set up for us. And some of us need to come and we need to repent this morning. A practical outworking where we've destroyed unity with our tongues. It takes a lifetime to build a reputation and one South African bride to lose it. Some of us need to come and we need to repent before our Father. Some of us need to come and we're anemic around community. We don't really see the need. We feel like we're okay on our own. I think Scripture wants to come and convince you we need one another. This is not a 100-meter sprint. This is till we're 60, 70, 80, 90 years old. You can see the difference. You can see the difference over the years for those who've lived in community. Let's pray this morning and I'll let the Holy Spirit convict you of anything else He wants to. Father, we want to thank You for Your Word. We want to thank You that as we look at this man, Paul, writing to this group of people 2,000 years ago, yet somehow still it pierces our hearts. It comes through thousands of years and speaks articulately and clearly into our modern Stellenbosch context or wherever else we may be from this morning. God, Your ability to turn the lens onto our hearts is, is uncanny through your word. Lord, I want to ask for a grace this morning for us to live out of an outflow of knowing and loving Jesus, believing in him and then having a faith which is growing in him and not learning behavior, not learning moralism, not learning any kind of other tricks or the way that new gen works or any of those things. God, we, we despise that, Lord. We want to look to Jesus, but as we look to you, God, we see that there's things that you're asking us to change. There's things that you're wanting us to to adjust and work on, and there is an effort. There is a striving for good things. Salvation is secure, and yet, God, we strive toward maturity. We ask in our hearts this morning that you'd come and speak to us, challenge us who we need to be challenged, those of us who want to engage all the time in foolish controversies and come and address that in our hearts, all these different areas, God, would you come and work in our hearts. In Jesus' wonderful name, we praise and thank you. And all God's people said, Amen.